But I don't think I fully released my father of the fact that, you know, he did the best that he could. But let me tell you this, though. And this is what my my brother that that became an alcoholic like him will say is that he he gave us the best life he can give us with what he came from. But look, I grew up in 16 years of that terror. And my kids will not be able to tell you that I reform myself. My kids don't know nothing about that. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. My guest today is Michael Arterberry. For more than 25 years, Michael has been helping teens and adults to use what they have gone through as a catalyst for success rather than as an obstacle for failure. Michael received the 2010 USA Network's Characters Unite Award for exceptional commitment to combating prejudice and discrimination while increasing tolerance and acceptance within the community. He's also the recipient of the 2014 100 Men of Color Award for Leadership in Education, Government, Mentorship, Entrepreneurial Success, and Community Service. In 2008, Michael founded Youth Voices Center, a nonprofit with the mission of helping young people to become active, productive members of society by overcoming their obstacles, their history, stereotypes, and even their own self-image and limiting beliefs. Welcome, Michael. Yes, yes. Hello. How are you, Ronnie? <laughs> I'm so good. I'm so excited about our interview. I'm also really excited because I believe you are in the New York area, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. How are things going over there? You know, it's it's not too bad. My kids' school is hybrid, mm-hmm. so that's not too bad. My daughter is a basketball player, and they cleared her basketball season, so she oh. has the first day of practice today. That's exciting. Uh, yeah, it is. So sports. Let's talk about sports, because I feel like your story is really rooted in this. I mean, it's rooted in a whole bunch of things, but you have two kids who are playing sports, and do they genuinely like sports? Do they like it a lot? Listen, let me tell you something. When I I was praying for healthy kids, but right behind healthy was the fact that I wanted athletes because, (laughs) yeah, it was, Ronnie. I I can't lie to you. My, I I was an athlete. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, I love sports. So I would have loved them regardless. Yes. Oh, that's good to know. But, 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 but God heard me and Uh I have two phenomenal, phenomenal athletes. So they're not, yeah, yeah. They, they're just like their dad. They, they really excel in sports. I'm dad. Um, I've been their coaches, so I'm coach, you know, and then as a motivational speaker, when I'm given permission, I motivate them. (laughs) Well, so you sound like, are they teenagers? Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. So because the the description you're giving me and the little rules that they have in place make me think that they're old enough to tell you what they really want and what they think. Because I have teenagers also. So <laughs> I know the yeah. signs. So let's let's go back then. And first of all, I'm really happy that you got your wish and you have athletic children who you love no matter what, but extra because they're athletic. And I know that you were a super, super megawatt athlete growing up. I, in, in the previous conversations, I think you told me you played everything. Like, Soccer, baseball, football, basketball, like you name it, you played it, right? Yes. And the the story of you in sports is tied in uh, very much to 
the way that you grew up and and how your home life was unfolding and the role that sports played. So do you feel like you can talk a little bit about the the first time you got involved with sports to your memory and understood that it was a really good break from the rest of your life? You know, my first sport was soccer. My mom got me into soccer when I was around eight. You would love to think that she got me into the sport because she wanted her son to be this super athlete, but she did it because she wanted me to have rested from a raging alcoholic father. The sport became my outlet. When she saw that I was able to get rested from the soccer, she just started to rotate those four sports that you you, you talked about. So I went from soccer to basketball, to baseball, to football. And I did all four right through until I graduated high school and as a senior in high school, I could have gone to college to play any of those four sports. Hmm. So were you also very appreciated by your teammates and your coaches? Well, you know, what I, what I did is within the structure of my athleticism, you got you to gotta think about it. My house was dysfunctional. So I didn't really have this home where, you know, the best example like the Brady Bunch or the Cosby show you know I didn't have this really loving family so what I did as a as a child which I go back and I use it now with my talks is I created a functional family within my dysfunctional family so my coaches became my father figures because my raging alcoholic dad was far from someone that was trying to be a role model my teammates became my brothers and sisters. So that love that I would have with uh, a sibling and then the accolades that I got from being good in the sport allowed me not to fall victim to a house full of so much negativity. So I, it was like a bubble. So you got to imagine this kid is cruising through life. He's living in this horrible situation, but because of those factors that I just explained to you, I felt like I was untouched. Mm, wow. You really felt that, that, that it afforded you enough of that sort of bounce and protection that you could use it to fortify yourself when you were home? Listen, it, it's guaranteed because what I went through, if, if what, I've read a, a book and it says, uh, thank God I don't look like what I came through. If, <laughs> if, if I would, yeah, can you imagine if I look like, what I endured in my house, I would not look the way that I look today. Mm-hmm. Did you have any siblings? Yeah, I had um, two two brothers and a sister. And let me say say this, especially they'll never hear the podcast, but they were they 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 were loving. So when I say I created siblings, I don't want you to think that my siblings were dysfunctional. Um, but you got to see my 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 sister is the closest sibling to me and she's 12 years 12 years from me so what happened was is my mom you know back in the day she she thought she was going through menopause went to the doctor yeah she went to the doctor and the doctor said i'm sorry uh miss arterbury but you're pregnant you know um uh, and she had me at an older age you know during technology was not so advanced, had some major complications. And uh, once I was born, the doctor told her I was going to be her gift. And it took me a long time to get there because during my teenage years, I was, the last thing I was was a gift. 
But eventually I got to a point where she could brag about her little baby being a kid. <laughs> wow. So I didn't realize you were the baby of the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I, I don't like to say afterthought, but I mean, I was far after my sister where mm. I, I almost grew up as an only child. Yes. No, I hear this a lot. In fact, I just interviewed someone who had a six-year difference between themselves and their brother, and they said it was such a, a vast age difference for the growing up years, even six years. So I can imagine. So does that also mean that you were in the house a lot with just your father and mom? Yeah, yeah. You know, believe it or not, my mom and I have a different relationship than they have. And I think it's because of the fact that we were in the house alone so long. Because what I realized is my raging alcoholic father uh, was verbally abusive and physically abusive to my mom. To us kids, you got verbal abuse. It was never directed like right at you. So it wasn't like he would belittle you right in your face. I think really. Matter of fact, it was never really at you, but if your mom is being treated that way, I think it, it it's it, you know, it's it's the byproduct. I say that because I realized at a young age that if I got in my mom's lap, my dad wouldn't beat her with physically, but he would still yell. So, Ronit, you gotta think about it. I'm like I remember three, four years old when I would hear them arguing in a room. I would literally get out of my bed, go into the room. If she was sitting on something, I would climb into her lap. And she never told me, get off my lap. And I did this until I was too big to sit in her lap. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like um, kind of one of those things you learn in a family, like the the order of operations or the rules in yes. the family, like the unspoken. Yes, yeah. Did you yes. ever talk about it later in life? Oh, uh, you know, we had a real... We had one of those real loving moments where um, I, I brought it up. We didn't discuss it. And, you know, what 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 we realized is that was our connection, you know, um, because I did that for her growing up. But then I, I was still left in the house. It, it came up because I was the last to obviously move out. And when I told my mom that I was moving into my first apartment, I thought she would be proud that I was, it was my rite of passage to manhood, but I broke her heart. I broke her heart. I thought I was giving her a gift because I wanted independence and she was hurt because I was, I was, you know, like her, her, her soulmate in the sense that we, we used each other in, in times of crisis. At the time, my dad was, had passed, my siblings were gone. And so I was moving on and she was gonna be alone. And my my young adult life mentality, I never thought about the fact that, wow, she would take it that way. Right, but do you were you waiting? Did you make that decision to move out only because your father had passed? No, my dad passed when I was 16. Ah. So I didn't move, yeah, I didn't move out. I didn't move out. You know, what I did for my mom, well, not for my mom. My mom's done everything for me. So this is not like I owe her. But uh, what I did is, is I went to school for social work and I could have gone to graduate school and did uh, graduate classes for a year and got my master's in social work in just one year, accelerated program. But I, I, I 
didn't do that because immediately I wanted to get in the workforce so that I would have the ability to contribute to my house. That was what I wanted to do. You know, my mother raised four kids with a housekeeping salary because my dad spent all his money on, 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 on drinking. So she struggled all her life. So I was very proud of getting to the age and being able to, you know, I, I'll never forget bringing home my first uh, installment to rent. Like, mm. yeah, mom, this is, mm-hmm. this is for rent. And it was best feeling in the world. So I'm curious about this. You know, I know families are different in in their, you know, unspoken rules and, and what happens and how you grow up. Did your siblings when you were younger, not now, because I know you guys are adults, but when you were younger, did people, did you talk in the house about your father? Were, were there were there discussions about, you know, protecting your mom or about how you felt about your father? Let me tell you something, Roni, and I'm keeping it 100% real. You, you, there was, you didn't have to, he, he terrorized us, terrorized all of us, all of us. So, so it, it wasn't a, a blip on the radar, put it this way. After my dad died during the holidays, we would start out maybe talking about stories of what we endured. And then all of a sudden we would all just look at each other like, you know what, let's, let's, Let's put this up. My, we we went through situations where you could have made lifetime movies. And I'm not talking about one or two situations. You think in my 16 years, I could have made volumes and volumes of things that I went through growing up that, first of all, if if, if Child Protective Services ever knew, I would have been pulled from my home. And and second of all, if 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 law enforcement heard about it, my dad would have been arrested. Mm. Hmm. So what about your mom then? I, I feel like for a parent, it's, you know, she was a victim of abuse and she also was the only other adult in the house. So what are your thoughts about, you know, staying, her staying, and what she knew you were going through watching her get hurt? Well, you know, my mom is a woman of faith. And she had a strong relationship with God in a church. And she dove into that. And she was able to pull that around her like a blanket. Um, and anybody that is into their faith in God, that's that's part of his responsibility to us as his children. So that's what I think happened. I think what happened was is he protected her to a certain extent because, you know, my mom comes to stay at my house every so often. But even when I was a little younger and I lived with her, if if she fell asleep in a separate room in the middle of the night, you would wake up and have to wake her. And this is after my dad had died because my mom would be having nightmares of my dad chasing her. And so you would walk in the room and she's, she's whimpering and she's running and you knew what was going on. And so you would have to calm her down and be like, mom, 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 wake up, wake up, mom. And so, you know, um, she was able to endure and and keep it together for the old school reasons of keeping family together. But the but the the scars and the trauma that it left on her was, you know, when he died, put it this way, when he died. 
we all had to go to a special place to not say good. Like there's this thing that's popped into my head, which is there's only so much someone can take. And, you know, I wonder, did you hit that place growing up and have to just stomach it? How did you, as a growing young man, negotiate watching what you saw and, and your feelings about the way you were growing up? Well, you know, it's funny. Four siblings, and all four of us took something different from this father. So you got my oldest brother who, when he would get verbally aggressive, and my older brother's a big dude. I'm a big guy myself, Mm -hmm. but my older brother makes me look little. (laughs) But I say that, yeah, yeah. And (laughs) and so my older brother could have crushed him with like a pinky. Mm. That's how big he was of a man. Mm. But of course, it's his dad. And so what my older brother did is my older brother took it and separated himself to the point where he lives and lived in a long time in a place of of not reality. He like he made it seem like he didn't really live in that house. All right. My second oldest brother became my dad. So he loved him. So like if you talk about my dad in front of my second oldest brother, you'll have a fight on your hands because his memories of my dad was they were drinking buddies. And then my sister, because every daughter wants their dad to be their king and and this guy that you want to make your husband like, when you speak to her, she stayed in La La Land with my oldest brother. So she thinks he was the guy that saved the day and was our protector. But you know what? I, I think me being a social worker and the type of work that I do now, my brain gave me the ability to look at it for what it really was. And and so, you know, what I did is I didn't hate him when it was happening. I told you I created this protective life. So I didn't look back on life and say, yo, dude, you, you took away my happiness and what I was able to have. When I realized that I haven't forgiven him is I watched this movie called The Shack, a movie about faith and this guy's daughter is abducted and and he gets to go back to the cabin where she was abducted. He meets God in the three forms of God and God allows him to, to come to grips with what happened to his daughter, but he was abused by his father and part of the movie He's on a on on top of a mountain and he's looking into a valley and there's all these people that are illuminated, almost like figures. And one of them lights up and God says, that person wants to talk to you. And he's like, yo, uh, I don't know if I want to. And the God said, go down and talk to him. And he went down and it was his dad. Now, his dad abused him growing up, but his dad hugged him and said, you know, listen, I raised you the best that I could, you know what I'm saying? And so he kind of gave him some closure and I cried. I cried because I was like, wow. Now I didn't carry it. So it wasn't like it was something I carried and it was heavy, but I don't think I fully released my father of the fact that, you know, he did the best that he could. But let me tell you this though. And this is what my my brother that, that became an alcoholic like him will say is that he he gave us the best life he can give us with what he came from. 
But look, I grew up in 16 years of that terror. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my kids will not be able to tell you that I reformed myself. My kids don't know nothing about that. Mm. You know, it's. I think that's a really important point because, first, there's so much I want to say, but I know in families there are these roles that we play, and there are these things that happen every time you get together with your family of origin. There's all these kinds of um, conversations or feelings and vibes and all that. And I'm not surprised to hear that your siblings have different experiences or at least beliefs about how they grew up. Now, are you saying that the brother who drank with your father became the alcoholic? Oh, yeah. I mean, he became his, his, his split limits. But you want to hear something crazy, Ronit, is So they all move out. And whenever he would rage, meaning my father, if you call that brother, he can get him out the house. This, and it wasn't a power. You know, he may call it a secret power. The power was they just would go somewhere and get even mm -hmm. sloppier drunk. Right. So they had a, uh, you know, they had a an agreement. It was like this, this like agreement in the relationship, and you know, unspoken, right? It's just this yeah. is what we do together. Yeah. So, I mean, did neighbors and family know about this? I mean, what was? Did anyone ever express concern or say, you know, maybe it's it's enough already? Or did faith in God preclude that happening? Roni, you're you're not gonna believe this one. So check this out. As crazy as all that is that I just told you, this man was able to pull it together when he went in public, not only to the point where he could pull it together. My friends used to be like, yo, your dad's the coolest dude. People in the community thought he was this honorable guy. But check this out. My wife wrote a book on my life story. It's called God Was Holding, God Was Holding My Hand. And I tell you this because as she's writing it, I'm telling my family at every every gathering we have, I keep telling them, listen, my wife's writing this book. My wife's <laughs> writing this book. <laughs> I'm warning them, Ronit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> my wife's writing this book. Finally, I showed up to one of those functions and it was published. And now that it was published, now they're looking at me like, dude, how could you do that? The oldest brother you know, he, he, you can never find him. He tracks me down. He's like, I have no right. You know, that brother that was the alcoholic like him, you know, what, what happened was, is they fought, they got to a point where they were now going to be embarrassed that the gig, the gig was up. No, no. And then, you know, my, a buddy of mine bought it. That was my grade school friend. And I, I did play dates at his house. And he's he's a he's a uh, uh, a lawyer for Chanel. I mean, he's highly successful. He's on a family trip in Florida. Ronit, he called me crying, and he's like, "Dude, man," he says, "But you came to school every day with a smile on your face, and if we didn't know, he's like, "Yo, we didn't know," and and so. Nobody knew my dad was a tyrant. That written. seems really complicated for your mom, too. I mean, as the years went by, I mean, is she is she alive? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. she's alive. Yeah, you okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't hard because they were so different as far as people. We didn't do social gatherings because he, 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 he ruined everything. You could never go anywhere with him, Ronit, and not have drama. But remember, he wouldn't, he would save the drama for the family. 
So if you went somewhere, he was the greatest guy until he got in the car. Mm-hmm. And then he would he would kick ass. I don't even know if this is relevant. Did he ever acknowledge his behavior or show remorse? No, ever? no, no, no. He was like every, every your, your common alcoholic. He would kick it, but all day, all night. And I'm talking about there was times I went to school. I, I was kept up until maybe four or five o'clock in the morning. He would wake up the next morning, would never apologize to my mom, get dressed and just leave. Every so often he would go cold turkey. And, and, and it wasn't like he was trying to kick the alcohol. What he would do is he would lock himself at home. So he would come home and not go out. And we hated it because he was now sober. But your fear was any time he went to drink after locking up like that, Ronit, it was horrible, horrible. That night that he would come home after he's locked in for maybe six weeks or eight weeks, you, you, while he was locked in, you would want to bring him a bottle. <laughs> mm. Yeah, nah, you could chuckle. I'm serious. Mm. You would, you would literally want to sneak him a bottle to his room and be like, "Yo, pops, come on, take a sip." Because you're saying that the backlash was so bad. Oh, it was severe, Ronnie. Mm-hmm. It wasn't bad. I, I can't even let you under, understate that. It was severe. Just raging. You know, it's because, oh, you know, oh. I know you say you're raging alcoholic father. And it's like, I know, I know I, I, I hear it. And it's like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put myself there, you know, with sound. All right, all right. So, so let, let me, let me walk you through a night. Check this out. So, so we had to memorize his footsteps from me because you had to prepare yourself internally of what you're going to endure for the next eight hours. Now that alone is sick. Imagine he would put his key in the door. So we first we would hear his footsteps. So living in a duplex, soon as you hear movement and he's not home, you listen for his footsteps because if they're rapid, that means he's buzzed and he wouldn't be as much of a rage when he was buzzed. He would end up arguing, but it wouldn't really get to that like, 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 devil in its eyes type of rage. But if you heard movement and then you heard silence, you would get this feeling in your gut because silence meant that he was drunk. And so he would come up the stairs, Ronit. He would put his key in the door. He would stand there for like 10 minutes. And when he opened that door, this man would rage from the time he came through the door until he eventually passed out. Now, what he's yelling about, he's screaming at my mom over something that happened 35 years ago. Like it just happened that morning. It has nothing to do with you, but you have to stay close enough because if he's going to go into, like I said, the action of the physical, you have to kind of, with me, I would have to, Like, not intervene. And it was what the only beautiful thing about it is I never had to put my hands on my dad. So if I just gotten, but let me tell you, in the midst of this story, when I was 16, now I told you I was a big dude. 
I told my mom, when he comes home tonight, I'm beating him up. At 16, I could have I could have took him out. I could have killed him, to be honest with you, Ronique. But I didn't think about killing him. But I wanted to beat him so bad that he could eventually say, yo, listen, I'm not going to go after this boy's mother anymore because he may hurt me. And you know what my mom told me, Ronique? She said, don't you touch him when he comes home. And I looked at her and I'm like, have you been living in the same house as me? But you know what she told me? She says, if you put your hand on your father, I have to choose. Don't make me choose between your dad and you. And I'm looking at her like, yo, I was angry, but I stepped away from it. And I realized once I beat him up, she's got to put me out. You know, she she's afraid of him. You know what yes, I'm saying? Yes, yes. So, she, so she's not going to, as much as she loves me, her initial is like, yo, you got to go. And and I think it's important to note, too, that, like, you know, there's this modern part of me and this this part of me that is not victimized. You know, I'm not victimized. And so it's easy for me in my head, and I'm, I'm letting you into my thought process, to say, why couldn't you just leave? You know, why? You know, and that is a completely uninformed response. I'm aware of that. But it is an interesting thing because, of course, you know, if you— if you did watch a movie about this or read a book, the mom somehow escapes or gets out of there and people get, you know, some redemption. But it's not like that, is what you're saying. Well, you know, no, it was. It was because what happened was is when he died, remember, all the kids are out. So my siblings have not yet been able, they 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 have issues, but they don't think they have issues. Mm, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Oh, being yeah. A social, yeah, being the social worker that I am and being able to process it properly, I don't, I don't, I don't have issues. They have post-traumatic stress issues. But when you say a silver lining, his death was it. So what happened was is when he died, she grieved for a man, but I don't think she grieved for a husband. Mm, yes. Do do you, you feel see? like she's free now, aside from those nightmares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Besides the nightmares, because I mean, it was the freedom was almost instantaneous. Because think about one night you go because he had a car accident. So imagine he had a car accident which was connected to drinking. So imagine going to sleep one night in fear. Waking up the next morning, that tyrant that you feared has an accident, but three nights later, you don't have to deal with it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And you didn't, you don't have to feel guilty either. No, 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 no guilt. So, you know, she, she worked through the grieving and you know what, what was what funny is, you know, he died right around Christmas. We didn't do Christmas for maybe like five years after his death. When I realized, check this out, I'm a social worker. And I used to go in and remove kids from abusive homes. So I, I remember going to a kid's house. He was chained to a radiator. There was dog feces I had to step over to go get him. And no food in the fridge. This is his living area. I take him and bring him to safety. And he fought us to go back there. But that's because it becomes part of your normal. So what we what we 
we didn't grieve and miss my dad, but we 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 missed that dysfunction. And so five years, yeah, we did. You know, five years went by. There was a hole missing, which wasn't a positive hole. And then finally, after five years, it's like somebody woke up and said, yo, what the heck are we doing? And we and we brought it back around and we and we and we started to celebrate. You know, I think that that brother that was like Jim kind of kept some of that going because he kept drinking and acting crazy, you know, not to us, but then, you know, he, you know, it's unfortunate my nephews got raised in an environment identical to what my brother came from. Oh man. And and that yeah. was just you're like reading my mind because I was just gonna say I wanted to circle back to what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, which is how people can turn out so differently in the same family. Yeah, and yeah. here you are, you're saying that, you know, your kids wouldn't even ever know the way you were raised because that's nowhere near anything you would ever do. And yet you have a brother who is repeating the pattern. And what do you think about that? I know tons of stuff could be written about this, but what's your hunch having been a social worker and lived through this? Why is it nature or nurture? Do you think it's because of who you are, your birth order? Why do you think that you are just, why is he like that? And you're, like you you know because god gifted me with the ability to be intuitive and in the faith and it's called discernment i'm i'm i am i maybe not the, the the most book smart intellectual guy but i've always had an innate ability to look at things and properly pick them apart and and because I've been able to do that. And then you think about this. So growing up, I've, I was able to distinguish and compartmentalize my life. And then my career is talking about what I endured. So my job, which I get paid for on a daily basis, is therapeutic. Yes, right. You're always kind of bringing it out into the light. I, I have to. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I have to. If I'm talking to an audience, I'm motivating them from what I endured. When I'm talking to teenagers, I'm motivating them from what I endured. So I've I've gone through it, I've dissected it, and I and I know where to put it. Yes, yes. And it's sort of what you're saying, I think, is that the unprocessed feelings can be more dangerous and and they can just keep coming back to haunt people. So the work that I do with teenagers is, it's about your story. So I hired my brother, the, the alcoholic brother. Finally, let me tell you, he got his life together. He's he's he, he's living well. He's alcohol free. I mean, he became alcohol free because he got pancreatitis, and they said if you ever drink again, you'll die. So I hired him, and he started to travel with me. Now, when I first had him in my circle, so I run groups. I do them in circles, they're in depth. I talk, when he wasn't with me, I would talk deep about my dysfunction and how this dad abused me. I pull him into my circle and I started to feel like I felt handcuffed. And anytime I would speak about my father, I would kind of look at him and forget that we had different perspectives on him. But finally, he worked with me for like two years Eventually, in the midst of that journey, he looked at me, Roni, and was like, yo, I'm sorry. He says, I'm sorry because he didn't know. 
They didn't know, you know, you got to remember all those years I lived it by myself. But he was like, I, 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 I'm sad that I left you in that environment. I'm like, dude, you couldn't have took me anywhere. You were just as freaking bad. <laughs> Did you say you that? Know, no, I, no, I wanted to, though. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I wanted to, though. But, but, but you know. I, I feel like I wanted yeah. you to say it to him. But yeah, I, I yeah. understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? I didn't have to because what 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 eventually happens in life is he he was on the road with me for 2 years we would meet young people who had dads just like he was to his son so for 2 years he got a constant reminder of how he destroyed two lives because he couldn't come to grips with something that was his own hindrance Mm. Are are his children grown now? Yeah, and they're screwed up. Oh man, do oh, they have they're... a relationship? No, well, eventually, but you know, it's crazy because they're now adults. One of them is 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 um addicted to pharmaceuticals, so he's he's addicted to pills. The other one is not an alcoholic, but not dealing with what he came through. Um, he, it, it spins off as anxiety, this, that, and whatever. But if you speak to my brother now, the guy that's recovered and living regular, a regular life, he takes no responsibility for the way they turn out. Oh, so it seems like that's not, he didn't do much learning then. I want to talk about the work you do and, and before, you know, in this next part, but I was curious what your relationship to alcohol and drugs is. Oh girl, I I I I I played with them bad boys. Come on, I came from man. I smoked weed. I did cocaine. I did all the drugs. I did all the drugs. It was in my house, you know. Uh, you know, my my oldest sibling didn't do any of them. I I I tried them all. <laughs> and and? Once, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 what I'm saying, and 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 I found that with the the history that I have, you can't do that. You know, and then with the alcohol, what happened was is finally in college, I did the college drinking. The drugs, I put them aside. I didn't, when I say experimented, I ran through them. So it's like, tried it, tried it. Ah, I don't really like this. And I just stopped it. So nothing I I, I ever had to wean myself off. I, I created a new relationship with alcohol when I realized in college, I was like, yo, listen, dude, look, look at what you're doing. You're creating yourself up to be just like your dad. And I didn't want it. So I, I created a new relationship with alcohol. And so I'm at the point now where, listen, you come to my house. I have some beers in the fridge, but I, I'm not getting drunk anywhere. And and alcohol and I have a very good relationship and, you know, when you were young and you were going to school and I know that you had the coaches and stuff, but you were in this environment where there's so much stress. Did you, did you have any physical symptoms? Because all I can think of is, you know, when that kind of stress in a family can, can happen, you, there can be so many, you know, d there can be so many illnesses that the stress comes out as like upset stomach and, you know, it, you know, lowered immune system and headaches. Did you have any of that? Nope. You know why? Only reason why I wrote it is because the sports fields became my exit. Oh man, if you came and watched me, I was I was amazing. 
I was amazing. And all of them, because I took everything that I felt inside and I just regurgitated it out on whatever field I was on. Mm-hmm. And so you you have said, and I just love, I love that you said this, you said that you don't have to take your history with you. It just feels like that really encapsulates what you do. Your, your history can control your destiny if you don't look at it from the proper perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you've been a social worker for a while. So let's talk a little bit about, I know you've won some awards for all of your work to help people in their own journey of growth and kind of, I guess I want to say kindness and vulnerability and becoming who they can be and not letting their circumstances dictate the rest of their life. So what are you passionate about now? What do you work on regularly now that you're excited about? And I have a nonprofit that I bring into high schools where I try to find young people. They don't have to come from the dysfunction that I came from. I, I, I relate and I connect as kids that came through the horrific experience I have but I also have relationships with the kid that's in the honor roll classes going off to Harvard. You know what I'm saying? And what I do is, is, is I have a, a unique gift to, to bring comfort to people with my words and my presence. Sometimes I don't even have to say something to you. I could just be in the same room with you and you feel like I'm holding your hand or coddling you. And, and it makes people want to tell me their deepest, darkest secrets. And, and and I'm the type of person that once you tell me and you make yourself vulnerable, I take what you tell me, I make sense of it, and I help you help yourself direct your path on which way you want to go. So I do that in a setting with teenagers in high school, and, and I do it with adults. You know, I do one-to-one one, one, to one sessions where I allow you to, to get some of that history out, but then I allow us as a partnership to unwind it and find proper perspective with it so it becomes a catalyst to be successful rather than a catalyst to fail. Mm. When did you notice that you seemed to have this effect on people where they could talk to you and, and be sort of in community with you without you having to do much? When I was a counselor as a teenager, I always ended up getting a kid in a camp that nobody could control. And, and you know, I, all I would do is, you know, Jimmy would come in my group. And I'm a type of guy when it's a discipline problem, immediately I, I set boundaries that maybe other people haven't been able to set because I'm, I'm, I call myself a real person. Is I, I genuinely give you sort of the telepathy that you you say, yo, this guy really cares about me. You know, he really cares about me. And when a person really genuinely absorbs the fact that you care about them, it's amazing on what they'll do for you. How do you handle it when you get tapped out or emotionally drained? How do you recharge and get back to the full enough to help other people? I don't get tapped out. Now, I don't say that out of conceit. But I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual guy. So my, my place of rest is my God. And so every day I wake up and I spend a solid hour with, between music, reading, videos. And I fill myself on a daily basis with this God that I believe in. And so I, I in the Bible, it says, leave it at his feet. And that's what I do, Rodney. 
It's, it's I get up every morning. I just told you about all these people that I have these interactions with. And what I do is I, I put it at his feet on a daily basis. So by the time I leave my house to get in my car, I'm empty. It definitely helps me too. I empty out. You know, I have to be empty when I go in the presence of these people because if I'm carrying anything, I can't absorb what they're trying to give me. Right. And do you feel that if you weren't doing this work, it would be bad for you? Oh, I'd be a freaking maniac. Really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I may be a mass murderer. I mean, no joke. <laughs> You you see me on the channel two news. Listen, this this is the most healthiest thing. Oh man. Yeah. So Michael, if listeners want to find you and connect with you and learn more about your work and your mission, what where would you like them to find you? Listen, they can come to MichaelArterberry.com, which is my my public speaking platform. So that if you want to see what I do more on the individual level. And with audiences, you can come there. Um, if you want to do what, see what I do with the youth, they can go to youthvoicescenter.org. And that is my nonprofit that I do with the young people. If they go there, there's a nice video. It says uh, Power of Peace, the name of my program in action. They can see me actually working with the youth. So they can check it out. Um, they can come to my social media pages. Michael Arterbury on Facebook. We'll put it in the show notes. They can, they LinkedIn, all my social media pages. I'm interactive. This guy that you hear on this interview, if you hit me up with a message on any one of those platforms, I respond to you. And I say that because what I also do, and I want your listeners to know, is I do one-to-one. I do the one-to-one coaching um, sessions to really help people dig into their stories and find purpose in their lives. And so, you know, sometimes people hear me in a podcast for a short period of time, but if, they, if they're if they interested in doing something like that, we'll put my, my email address in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put everything hey, for contacting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and come on, let's, <laughs> let's, let's go for this ride. Let's go for this ride because, you know, I, I love it. I love to get in, get in your car, in your in your passenger seat and, and and teach you how to drive, even though you may have a license. <laughs> That's awesome. Ooh. Michael, it was so good to talk with you. Oh, listen, I, and, and I like your energy. My, my, my best interviews are actually when people have good energy. And Ronit, you have good energy. Oh, thank you. I, I will take that compliment, especially coming from you. Uh, I wrote a book, Be Encouraged. Okay, so we can find that too. Be encouraged. You have 250 days of motivation and and encouragement. They can actually go to Mm shakethedirtexperience.com and they can get a free free copy. Thank you so much. You take really good care of yourself because we all need you. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. 
If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.